I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. On this week's episode of The Trade Guys, Bill and Scott take stock of trade policy at the end of 2023 and consider what might happen in the future. Join us for this episode of The Trade Guys. And Trade Guys, we're back, and regular listeners will not recognize my voice as it's my first time on. I'm Matthew, a researcher on the Shoalshare team here at CSIS, and I'm filling in this week for Andrew and Tebow, who are both out. But I'm excited to be on this episode because today we're going to be talking about the big picture. As we wind down the year, we're looking at the major challenges facing the global trading system. So, Trade Guys, what are the most important issues going into 2024? Well, first of all, welcome to Matthew. He's been with us for a while, has done a great job, and we're glad to have him, if not visible, at least audible for all of our listeners. And uh, best wishes to uh, Andrew, who is laid up right now, and, and TiVo is on vacation. So you know, you'll be hearing more from them when they both get back. It's always fun to talk about big picture, for me at least, because it means you don't have to get into details. And so we don't have to spend as much time on, on facts. And People who've listened to this podcast before know that Scott is our maven of facts and I'm the maven of opinions. So big picture is fine with me. But I thought what I would do is lay out a couple of them without much description and then uh, turn it over to Scott to you know pick as many as he wants and then we can talk about the challenges that are being faced and, and sort of what it means for the trading system. I think we'll probably run out of time before we get to the, the more important question is, so what do we do about all this? But we have future weeks, so we can get back to that subsequently. I think the big changes that we're, we're facing, meaning that we're dealing with them now, and they're also looming, uh, going to get worse and not better, is first something that we've talked about before, which is the co- combination of national security with economics. It's hard to have a trade conversation these days without talking about national security, And it's hard to have one without talking about China, which is the reason why we talk about national security. So that's one that has changed the calculation for a lot of people when it comes to trade and trade agreements and changed the priorities. I think second and not unrelated is the search for resilience in supply chains, which we learned in particular through COVID when we ran out of things. And uh, the result is that supply chain managers now are learning that they need to add a non-economic variable to their calculations, namely choke points and redundancy and resilience. Uh, So we don't want to run out of stuff, either because another country makes a political decision to block our supply uh, or because of an earthquake, you know, or a monsoon or, or COVID that shuts down factories. So dealing with resilience and the implications of that for the trading system as companies all over the world really reassess risk and think about revising their supply chains to take resiliency into account is another big issue. The third one gets off into what uh, a new term I learned uh, in a meeting last week. Uh, And the new term is global collective action problems. 
It's a wonderful term in the uh, in the think tank world. We can write papers about global collective action problems. It's kind of obvious when you think about what it means. It means things that are not just national or bilateral. They are problems that affect everybody. And they're important in the trading system because if they affect everybody, they probably can't be solved by single parties uh, or even by two parties. They at best can be solved through multilateral action. And that's where the trading system comes in because we have multilateral institutions. The most obvious one is climate and the climate crisis, which we've talked about on this program many times and we'll continue to talk about them. COP28 is meeting right now in Dubai and Trade Day was on December 4th and produced a lot of words about what we need to do about this. And there's going to be a lot more going forward as countries and, and governments wrestle with the problem of how do you decarbonize, how do you reduce your emissions in a way that is consistent with trade rules, or do we amend the trade rules? So that's a third one. And I think uh, there are other global collective action problems lurking out there, worker rights, human rights, uh, healthcare, access to medicines, which is an issue that the WTO has been dealing with via the vaccine waiver issue, which is still being debated most recently uh, this month in Geneva. They've not yet been able to come to a, a decision about whether to expand the waiver that the 12th ministerial approved in June of 2022. And then the final one, I think, is, is the, the rise of, of populism and populist leaders. We're, the United States is not immune from this if you're following U.S. politics, but nor are we unique. And some of the characteristics of populist leaders are uh, protectionism and opposition to immigration in most of its forms. And those two things, of course, have huge impacts on the trading system. So that's a boatload of problems we're facing. And I'm going to stop, stop there and not solve any of them and hand it over to Scott. <laughs> Sure. Well, Matthew, let me add my welcome. We're glad you're on the program. And it's always great to acknowledge that Bill has a terrific staff on the shoulder chair, and they are the brains behind the operation. They, they do all the work between episodes. We're, we're out here. The, we're, Bill and I are the front guys, but, but the back room is full of people working very hard to, to bring content. So we do appreciate all those efforts and uh, glad they show up on the, on the program once in a while in the front room, as it were. In any case, look, I always try to think about what what isn't changing and what is changing. A couple of things about trade policy and, and trade in general that aren't changing are, first, that people, when they, when they find a way to increase their living standard, they hang on to it. And one of the, one of the beautiful contributions of trade and globalization over the last 30 years has been uh, a genuine reduction in the number of people living in poverty. And so I think that underlies, uh, underscores a commitment on the part of individuals to keep what they have and, and, and make a better life for their family. Uh, that's one of the things that open markets do very well is that they raise people's living standards. And I think it's worth, always worth remembering that. The second thing is once you learn how to do something, you don't forget it. And uh, I've often I've often used the analogy of my friends who run a hardware store in Amish country in Ohio. It's called Do Layman Hardware in, in uh, Dalton, Ohio. And what they taught me is that any tool that finds a useful purpose in human existence 
has never gone out of production. So if you want a, a hand-operated Apple press or something that, that was maybe invented 200 years ago, you can still buy it new from some company that manufactures it new, right? That once a tool it finds a use, it, it stays with us. And that's the true of the tools of trade, logistics and all the acceleration of efficiency that came out of the information and, cons- and communications technology revolution and applied to logistics will not be forgotten. Those kinds of improvements stay whether or not the trading system advances or, or uh, sort of irregardless of politics. So those, those two things are pretty much constant. What changes are geopolitics, domestic politics, and demographics. And we're, we're, all those are subject to change at the moment. So geopolitics is changing in ways that uh, the, it, we are becoming multipolar as a world. And we have a trading system that originated in the post-World War II, what they called the economic order. It sort of broke down in 2008 and has had trouble recovering because geopolitics are changing. Uh, domestic politics, uh, I'm quite surprised at the level of tolerance for uh, subsidies and state direction that we have now in the U.S. I remember a Democratic president declaring that the era of big government was over 30 years ago or nearly that. And President Clinton was was a great politician, but he was wrong about that. He didn't didn't see the, the return of state direction. He got um, other things right. Yeah, he did a lot of other things right. So uh, give him credit for that. But Bill also talked about the backlashes, which is part of domestic politics. And while some populism is protectionist, not all of it is. I would note the roaring success of the Farmers Party in Holland. And, and this was a, the issue was the use of nitrogen as a fertilizer. And the, the party sort of came out of nowhere. But Dutch farmers are some of the most creative, productive agricultural people on the planet. And Holland, tiny Holland, is the second largest agricultural exporter in the world after the United States. It's amazing. And when their, when their livelihood was threatened and they received a, a direction from the, the par- party in power about uh, the use of essential ingredients for productive agriculture, they took action. So populism shows up in a lot of ways. Some of it's pro-trade in the case of the Dutch farmers. A lot of it is, is, is just different from what was before. New government in New Zealand, as an example, is uh, much more oriented on, on, on the basics than the previous. So I don't know what's going to happen to the U.S. or Canada, but domestic politics will continue to change. Now, I think one of the things that's missing is we don't seem to have a full-throated defense of what trade and trade agreements do well. I mentioned the raised living standards. They are great ways to to restrict or or minimize discrimination against products or people. Non-discrimination is at the core of our, of our trading system. They also have, allow peaceful resolution of dispute. Now, how many of these trade and problems or the collective action problems can be solved? I don't know, but uh, I'm inclined to let trade be trade. One final comment on the sort of the what I'd like to see, and Bill, I'd like to get your views on that. Is is look as we talk about friendshoring or nearshoring or or supply chain resilience, regional trade has been a great benefit to the to the global economy over the last thirty years. But it seems to me that it needs a second act. 
right? Uh, if you look at the, the, the European single market, it's nearly 30 years since the single market went into place. The single market was dramatically beneficial to Europeans. It created prosperity in a lot of ways. But where's it, so where's Act 2? How, how do you revive that? Uh, same with uh, in North America. Uh, the NAFTA was, it was uh, 1995 or so in terms of its implementation. The second act was you was USMACA, which is a little disappointing because uh, and I and I say that not because it didn't accomplish some things that were part of the campaign promises of Donald Trump and and he delivered on it in many ways, but there's a failure of imagination there. One of the things that you that USMACA did was got over the, the the partisanship and the the opposition of many Democrats to North American trade uh, was brilliantly done by uh, the operation of Speaker Pelosi and chair, at that time Ways and Means Chairman uh, Neal, uh, where they had an overwhelming positive vote uh, and sort of ended 25 years of hostility between the parties and, and about trade in North America. For me, there's a next step there somewhere of really rethinking how do we make North America resilient and productive and better for all the people who live here? That, it, that there's, there's some things we can do about how we make things together in the U.S., Mexico, and Canada that we haven't thought about. Now with a political truce that USMCA represented, maybe there's an opportunity. But Bill, am I on the, barking up the wrong tree on uh, regionalism and um, resilience? Yeah, partly, I think. We don't usually disagree, but on, on this, I'd throw in some other things. I think we seem to be, I, I think your examples are, are, they're good examples, but they're sort of, they're historical examples. I would argue that we're kind of going through a period of retrenchment or backsliding, if you will, on the trade front. The, in the Dutch case, for example, you know, their last ele- their election result a couple weeks ago was to basically, uh, the biggest vote getter was a far right party very far right party, anti-immigrant in particular. And I would suspect that there were more than a handful of Dutch farmers who voted for that party. Uh, I don't think they're particularly receptive to migrants. And I'm not sure how receptive they are to agriculture imports, however much there may be for agriculture exports. Uh, It's going to take the Dutch a long time to form a government because the party in question, I think, got something like 33, 35% of the vote. So they've got a ways to go before they have a uh, put a majority together. I was talking to somebody last night about this who was bemoaning the fact that for a very small country, they have 15 political parties in parliament. So uh, putting together a co- putting together a coalition that has a majority, there's lots of opportunities there and lots of options. But with 15 different parties and a parliament, I think he said of 150 people, finding a viable combination is going to take a while the Dutch I were talking to did not think that they would beat the Belgian record of failure to form a government, which I think I think it took them two years at one point to, after an election to form a government. And right now we are only in the third week in the case of the Netherlands. So there's a long way to go, but it'll be a while. But I think in the United States, USMCA is, is not devoid of conflict. It's I think it was a step forward and it, it calmed down some of the controversy about NAFTA. I think what Scott and I both recall was NAFTA was uh, quite controversial at the time. And it, was, this is, it prompted a third party candidate for president, Ross Perot, who spoke about the, the giant sucking sound of you know, jobs and investment leaving the United States going to Mexico. 
He turned out to be partly right about that and partly wrong about that. But the new one, because it did achieve the, the very strong bipartisan support that Scott mentioned, has put some of the controversy to bed, at least politically. But there's, you know, there, there's a lot of issues that remain. The, the Canadian dairy issue that we talked about last week is out there. The automobile rules issue where the U.S. lost. That's, you know, basically we lost two. We have complaints against Mexico pending, not only a series of very specific plant, specific plant-oriented labor complaints, which seem to be able to be resolved, but complaints about their energy policies, complaints about their, uh, their policy on GMO corn of, of certain types. Uh, and these things are not proving to be any easier to solve than before. These are not new complaints and not new issues, and they're still there, and we're, st- we're still fighting about them. Uh, I think in the, if you look at the EU, going beyond the Dutch for a moment, you know, putting together with a single, the single market was a significant accomplishment. My sense right now is that you've got sort of single market fatigue in Europe, and you've particularly gotten fatigue with the European Commission putting out uh, an increasing number of rules that are causing some friction amongst the, the member states. And these are, you know, rules about how to conduct business, rules about how to behave, and they set sanitary, phytosanitary rules for food and beverages and agriculture, but health and safety, environmental rules, digital rules, the Digital Market Act, Marcus Act, the Digital Services Act, the Cloud Act, the AI Act, which is under discussion, not there yet, not across the finish line yet. Um, all of these reflect a European approach to regulation, which tends to be more stick than carrot, as opposed to the U.S. approach. In other words, you know, telling people how to design their products, telling people how to market their products, and telling people what to do. And there's signs in a number of these countries of a backlash and people suggesting that maybe we've gone too far. You see this particularly in climate, you know, one of the issues on our agenda, where we are just now in Europe reaching the point where people are going to have to start paying for decarbonization. Up until recently, it's been kind of free. And uh, the CBAM, the European CBAM, is going to go into effect. It's in effect now, but as far as reporting is concerned, as far as paying actual money is concerned, uh, it goes into effect uh, in the beginning of 2026. But that gets us back to something Scott said last week, you know, which is sort of, that's too bad, pay me. You know, we, we, and, and people don't want to pay. So there's a good bit of grumpiness in the economies about government going too far. It may be cognitive dissonance because Scott's right. At the same time, there's a lot of subsidization going on and people love their subsidies. You know, you want to give me money? I'll take it. Which in part is a sign that uh, carrots are a more popular policy than sticks, which is not exactly a revelation, but it's, uh, it's an issue. There's also grumpiness as to who benefits. I mean, Scott is right that the trading system that we've been supporting for all these years brought, has brought nearly a billion people uh, out of poverty. That's an extraordinary accomplishment. From an American point of view, though, most of those were Chinese, and relatively few of them were Americans. And while I would argue that one life and another life are equivalent, if you're an American, you're not seeing the benefits, and you're seeing another country getting the benefits, and particularly a country that we have a lot of problems with right now. So there's a lot of grumpiness about sort of the, the rearranging the deck chairs, if you will, in ways that, uh, that uh, we're not getting as many deck chairs as we used to. And people are, are angry about that. 
So it's I'm I'm a little gloomier I think than Scott is. Well, it's it's definitely tough, and on the on the issue of climate change, the energy transition, or however you want to describe it, it's clear that the easy part is over. However, you want to measure that, all right, and that if the that net zero has to be paid for by somebody. But to my mind, this is an opportunity for for people who work in trade policy to find ways to contribute to, to that the thinking and 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 to advance the issue in ways that increase economic efficiency as we we increase the efficiency and the use of energy. So, the, but definitely, Bill, you're right. The easy part's over. And all you have to do is look at the, the change in project economics because of the increase in the Fed fund rate. I mean, it quite so when, from an investor's point of view, when you have near zero interest rates, you can think long term. And that's what happened with, with wind and solar and everything that where investment flowed toward decarbonization. When the Fed funds rates at 5%, you don't think long-term, you think short-term uh, because you've got a, re- a reasonable return on a risk-free asset, the, the treasury at five, uh, for instance. And then that short-term thinking basically turns on its head the economics of all the projects that looked good at zero. And this is, a, this is the new reality for the energy transition. And for me, the creativity and discipline of some trade negotiations ought to be able to help here. I don't think we've we've captured the uh, sort of the shared vision of the future in that respect. But telling people to do it is uh, uh, is not going to work as well as negotiating your way to a better set of rules. Yeah, but you know, if you're ancient like I am, I remember five percent interest rates. I remember seven percent interest rates. Yeah, but not the what we had. In, what we had in the seventies is what we had in the eighties. This is what we had in the nineties. Zero or one percent is a relatively new phenomenon. So, in, from my point of view, we're just going back to the way it used to be. There's no question that that's roughly the average rate since so there was a central bank, at least in this country, and the, the previous 15 years at the zero bound were what was exceptional. Uh, We've but, been spoiled. Yeah, we did get spoiled, and then party's over. So, uh, the question is, how can you deal with that practically? I think there's probably a role for trade negotiators. Now, we've touched on a lot, but I want to make sure that we talk about U.S. manufacturing and the policy to bring manufacturing back domestically. Could you tell me a little bit about that? I think I'm thinking about writing a column about that, and I haven't made up my mind yet. So, Scott, you can tell me if my hypothesis is wrong, but I'm inclined, but I learned it from you. So (laughs) uh, I'm inclined to think that that the Biden administration's interest in, in reshoring manufacturing is first, I think it's politically driven uh, and it's designed to appeal to states he needs in the election, namely Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Indiana, Wisconsin, Illinois, some of which are uh, Illinois is fairly blue, Ohio is fairly red, but the rest tend to be purple. I think that uh, it's a political response, but uh, I remember something that Scott taught me, which is the, the smile curve. And uh, we're audio only, so I can't show people the smile curve, but basically it's a curve that looks like a smile. And what it suggests is that the, um, you know, the greatest value added in, in, in the process of, of designing, building, manufacturing, marketing a product, the greatest value added is at the front end and the back end, in the IP, in the design, in the creation, uh, and in the uh, sales, maintenance, repair, marketing, uh, and the back end. And that the part of the process that actually has the least value added is, is the fabrication, 
the marketing uh, process, uh, which is sort of an explanation for outshoring or offshoring. In, in the 80s and 90s, companies realized that because that was relatively more labor intensive than the other part and, and relatively low cost, they could offshore it and, and still make a lot of money by capturing the front end or the back end of the process here. So that leads me to sort of two thoughts right now. Is Biden simply trying to bring back the least important part of the process? Uh, and if so, why and what does that gain us? Uh, and then match that with the fact that I've ranted about this before. We don't have the workers to fill these jobs. We don't have enough workers to fill existing jobs. And you've got companies like TSMC delaying their fab plant plans in Arizona for, among other reasons, they're concerned about being able to acquire the necessary number of, of trained or trainable workers. And then you read about, you know, jobs. We have jobs going be- begging. And at the same time, we have, you know, legions of, of college students who are having difficulty finding jobs. Uh, but and in part because uh, not because the jobs aren't there, but the jobs they aren't, the, the jobs they want aren't there. They want to be they want to be uh, influencers. They want to be in media. They want to be on TikTok. They don't want to be on an assembly line making chips. So if we bring back basic manufacturing, first of all, are we going to be able to actually do that? And is it really in our economic interest to do that? Well, look, there there are a lot of things that are made in the United States. The fact that we import a trillion dollars worth of intermediate goods every year, that is things we use to make other things, says there's an underlying assembly and manufacturing operation that's going on uh, that's still a very important part of the U.S. economy. Now, it certainly employs fewer people than in the past because what, what happened during globalization is manufacturing specialized globally and that the United States is a high-wage, high-skill, high-tech market for talent. And so the things that get made here require high-skill, high-tech. Now, there's a, there are a couple places that the government can really help. One is the assurance of qualified workers. Right? And uh, we, Bill and I have both talked to people in the business over time and who basically say, give me somebody who can read, write, compute, and pass the drug test and wants to work and we'll train them. So it's not a matter of not do, of the skill training not being available, but it's getting people who see that as a, as a, as a good way to make a living over the long term. And I think with the advances in technology, AI and its derivatives are going to be a powerful tool for advanced manufacturing in the United States if they can attract the talent. The second thing the government can do is reduce, is make more efficient the operations that are already here. Uh, this We used to have a thing called the miscellaneous tariffs bill, um, and uh, Canada jumped right over us. Basically, if, you, if you're importing something to Canada to use in a manufacturing process, and it's not made in Canada, you automatically qualify for zero tariffs. So, you know, tariffs on a lot of industrial goods are low, chemicals five and a half to six and a half percent, but that's still real money. Okay, and so if we were to do something like Canada did 10 years ago, where where they have an import with no, there's no domestic source and no potential for domestic source, no objection to doing it, that you, you temporarily reduce the tariff. All of a sudden you're making, in a high inflation economy, you're making materials for manufacturing 
lower cost and making the production process more efficient and making the end finish good more competitive in the marketplace. So there are things the government can do. But the first thing you've got to, uh, to appreciate is that we do make things in America and we make them at the high end of manufacturing. And you've got to be prepared to to essentially advance where the where the jobs and technology are, because that's that's how we that's why we make things here in the global economy. So, but it's uh, so yeah, I do agree with you, Bill. The the, the program from the, uh, the administration is mainly political, but sometimes you can do good politics, and if you you have the right policy, you, you do good things for people. So. Well, I think the other element is that I became convinced we were going through very similar issues with Japan in the 80s, and we had the same kind of uh, debate. Uh, one of the things that I became convinced of was essentially if, if you don't make anything, eventually you don't invent anything. Uh, because what happens is you you start offshoring your IP and not just the know-how to build the, the object. Your, your lab moves, your research center moves. Pretty soon, everything is moved. So I have sympathy for what they're trying to do. Um, I think it would probably be helpful at this point to do exactly what what Scott recommended, along with having a, a an immigration policy that is more realistic than the one that we've got now. Let me press you further on that immigration policy, as I know we're talking about labor shortages. Could you tell me a little bit more about what a possible solution would be? No. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. <laughs> I, I don't. Uh, I don't have one. It's. Uh, I'm. I we're going. I think here at the Shoal Share. I think we're going to undertake a research project on that question. in, in 2024, we've got a little bit of uh, private sector interest in it. Most of the debate. I mean, there there are there are, there are multiple answers. I shouldn't say no, but a, a lot of the debate is focused on the the very high skilled end. PhD engineers, people who are going to design the next generation of chips and things like that. And there it's really an issue of, because a lot of them, a lot of those very talented people come here for their education, particularly here for their, their PhDs. The issue is, uh, how do we keep them in the country? And the common suggestion is, well, let's just staple a green card to their visa when they get the degree, or if, even if they're in that program. Uh, and I think that's probably a good idea. That's not really a a comprehensive solution to what we've been talking about. That's a solution to a very particular problem. Uh, and it's a serious problem because we need the talent. And and the, the, one of the things that just drives me up the wall is the assumption that, that you know, all talent and, and all advanced technology resides in the United States. Uh, and that's simply not true. There are people elsewhere that do things better than we do. And one of the the smart things that America has done historically is borrow. You know, if we see something better somewhere else, we borrow it and occasionally we, you know, occasionally we have stolen it. If you look at the, you know, the American chemical industry after World War One, which came largely from the defeat of Germany. Our record is not entirely pure on this, even as we attack the Chinese for doing the same thing, although on a much bigger scale. But we've been good at figuring out what's the best, and then co-opting it. I'm a little worried now that we are sinking into this path of, well, we're, we're already the best. Why do we need to listen to anybody else? And I think that the answer is we should seek out the best wherever we can and help make them American. 
I don't look. I don't think this problem, the problem of migration, can be solved without the Congress. I think it has been too long, uh, for for whatever set of reasons, both parties seem to prefer the issue than a solution. And so I think it was roughly 1987 was the last was the last one. Yes, the last meaningful changes to American statutes governing immigration, and the world's changed so dramatically since then. But I don't know how to do it without the Congress, the way our system works. And Congress seems perhaps partly because of the polarity and, and, the, and the, the, the narrow margins you know, that have persisted now for, for a dozen or so elections cycles. I don't know if they, they can do it, but I, I actually just don't know how to fix this without the Congress getting involved and deciding it wants a solution instead of the issue. Well, I agree with that. Our, the executive authority is limited here. But I mean, the, the debate has become, unfortunately, about uh, the people trying to cross the southern border. And it's become mostly about about numbers, uh, the number of people and where they're coming from, and then the enormous burden that places on local services, both there and to the extent that governors there are busing these people to other cities, the burden it poses on services elsewhere. There's not a lot of talk about who these people are, what skills there are, how can we uh, take advantage of those skills and in the process find find places for them where they can thrive. There was just uh, an interesting discussion, I think, in, in New York where I, think the, uh, I believe it was the governor that got involved in this, is how do we, how can New York simplify its work permitting procedures to enable migrants to get work permits more easily? Because in a way, that's once here, that's sort of the key to it. You know, if you want to get them off of public support, if you want to get them, not let them, you know, find them homes, uh, find them jobs. And if you want to find them a job, you have to make sure that they are legally able to work. And that's something that is, uh, in many respects, a state and local thing, not just a federal thing. Well, it's true. And it, it, it is part of the core problem of productivity growth in America today is that many of the services jobs we're creating are in sectors that have been resistant to productivity improvements. The classic uh, meds, eds, and feds. As it, so health healthcare workers, the education, both K-12 and higher ed, uh, have been growing in the proportion of Americans employed in those sectors as have as the government. And all three of those tend to be difficult to raise productivity versus, say, manufacturing or other sectors where productivity increases come somewhat naturally and are rewarded and incentivized by the investment of additional capital. So maybe AI and the, and the communications revolution will help there. But, uh, but uh, uh, Bill, I think you're onto something with, with thinking about how do we simplify and, and reduce barriers that can both employ people who are entering the economy, but also utilize better the people who are in these services jobs that is, has recently been, or last decade, has been a drag on productivity. Another good research project for the Scholl Chair. And with that, Matthew, I think probably we're... I think that's a great time to end it. Well, thank you so much for having me on. Well, thank you for being our master of ceremonies or moderator, whatever the right word is. And, <laughs> and uh, uh, you've done a great job and we'll grab you again in the future. Yes. Well, Washington remains a, a little sleepy this time of year. It's a great time for stock taking. And Matthew, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. And, and we'll be back next week to take more stock. Yes, indeed.
to our listeners. If you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.